I'd like to say welcome again to First Methodist Mansfield. Uh, my name is Johnny Brower and I serve as one of your pastors here and it is a joy to be in worship with you and such beautiful music sung for us today. Thank you. So will you join me in expressing some gratitude to our ensemble today? Thank you. Just a wonderful time of worship. Pastor Mike, who usually preaches this service, is uh, preaching for Pastor David at his services uh, while David is out of town. Uh, so I have the distinct pleasure of, of being here with you today. I want you to know if this is your very first time in worship with us, or maybe your first time in a long time, that we want to hear from you. Special welcome to you, but also uh, we want you to stop by our connecting point so we get a chance to know you, uh, answer any questions that you may have about us and the life of our church. Today we're going to continue our series entitled Faith in Hard Times, which is a study in the book of Habakkuk. It's a, a book in the Old Testament. And if you don't know where Habakkuk is in your Bible, or maybe you've never heard of Habakkuk, no worries. Uh, it's a tiny little book that's buried in the Old Testament, and churches don't typically uh, teach on Habakkuk, if they do at all. So if you brought your Bible and you're going to need to use your table of contents to find Habakkuk, it's okay. Nobody's going to judge you because we're all doing it. I just have mine on a computer, so you just tap Habakkuk and it shows up. <laughs> If you've missed any of the first two weeks of this series, I invite you to check out our website, firstmethodistmansfield.org, where you can see all of our archive messages, but catch up on any of those that you may have missed. They have been excellent. So thankful for those that Pastor Mike have been given. But for those of you this is your first time, or maybe those of you that have slept since the last time you've been in church, I want to reset for you real quick where we have come from in this series. We do a series like this called Faith in Hard Times because I think we all understand both intellectually, philosophically, we understand that over the course of life, everyone's going to go through hard times. Every, everyone's going to experience a difficult season. And as pastors, when we are putting something like this together, we also know that when we do a series like this, that there's going to be basically three categories of people in the congregation during a series of faith in hard times. The first is this. For some of you, this series could not be more timely. You're currently walking through a difficult time in your life, and you're thinking, wow, I'm so glad I came to church today. This series is exactly where I'm at right now. Hard times is how you would define your current reality, and this series could not come at a more perfect time for you in your life. For others of you, you may not be personally walking through a hard time or a difficult season, but you're close to somebody who is. You know somebody. It could be a child, a parent, a close friend, a co-worker, and they're struggling. Again, in a way, this, the timing of this series is perfect, and I want to I ask you to invite them into church to hear a message of hope in a time where hope is desperately needed. Show them our website where they can find the archived messages so, they can, so that God can speak to them through Habakkuk. For the rest of you, you would describe your life as good. You wouldn't say it's a hard time at all. Things are going well. Nothing is ever perfect, but it's close, I guess. And even though you agree and understand that at some point hard times are going to be a part of all of our lives, you may also find yourself thinking that you don't really need this right now. That this isn't for you. That everything is great and that you could probably just check out for a little while, uh, at least for the next couple weeks of church. And if this is you, I want to invite you to write down a little phrase at the top of your notes section that's on the back of your bulletin. It's a pastor phrase that, uh, a phrase that Pastor David has been sharing uh, in his sermons, and I think it is, it is wonderful for all of us. I may not need this today, 
but I will need this someday. I want you to write that phrase on the top of your bulletin. If you find yourself in that place thinking, I'm in a good spot right now and I don't really need this, you may not need it today, but you will need it someday. This series, Faith in the Hard Times, is an invitation for all of us, whether we're going through a hard time or not, to do our present self and our future self a favor and focus in on what God may be speaking to us through this series so that you may be better equipped to handle the hard times that you're going through now or the ones that may be waiting for you in your future. Because it's easy to love God, or anybody for that matter, when things are going well, when life seems to be in perfect rhythm and and harmony. It's really easy to be faithful then. But it's when times get tough, when times are hard, that our faith gets tested. And that's why we're looking at Habakkuk as the subject or the, or the vessel to explore this series because we want to know what it means to be faithful. We want to know what it means or how to be faithful during hard times. And Habakkuk was a prophet that lived through some particularly hard times. Near the end of the 10th century BCE, this is a little historical context for the, those of you that, that may need it. The 10th century BCE, after King Solomon had died, the nation of Israel split in two. There was a northern kingdom, a smaller northern kingdom named Israel, and then there was a larger southern kingdom named Judah. Now this split, as you would imagine, weakened the nations because they were split. And it not only weakened their religious unity, but it also weakened their military power and their ability to defend themselves against invaders. Because of this deteriorating strength of the nation, in the 8th century, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell to the Assyrians. Several hundred years later, uh, in the 6th century BCE, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah would eventually fall to the Babylonians. Now, Habakkuk lived and wrote in in Judah, the southern kingdom, and lived in the 7th century, which was between these two conquests. So what this means is, is, is Habakkuk can see what has happened to the northern kingdom of Israel and is basically just waiting for that to happen in Judah because he lived only a few decades before Judah would be overrun by the Babylonians and the Jews would be sent into exile uh, out of the land in which they inhabited and the temple would be destroyed. So here we have the prophet Habakkuk, who's grown up understanding that the land in which he lived was a gift from God and that he and his people, as they inhabited that land, were being led by God to be God's chosen and holy And yet, every day, Habakkuk looks around at his surroundings and sees that that is not being realized, that that dream is not being accomplished. In fact, the very opposite is happening, and it was happening at the hands of some very violent people. Now, the book of Habakkuk is very small. It's only three chapters, and it's really basically two sections. They're the first two chapters, which is a dialogue uh, between Habakkuk and God, between the prophet and God. And the third chapter, which is a prayer by Habakkuk offered up in a, in a, a petition and praise, which we'll get to over the next two weeks. Habakkuk's whole approach to this situation is one worthy of our examination. There's a lot to glean from the way the prophet handles the circumstances in which he finds himself. So today we're going to zero in on the very last verse 
of chapter 2. The last verse in the dialogue between prophet and God. Thank you, Johnny, for reading that so wonderfully. Great name, by the way, also. One verse, one verse that is really way more than just one verse. One verse that is packed with so much truth and it has so much importance for the prophet Habakkuk when he hears it and has so much importance for us today. But first, before we get to all that, I want to talk about outer space for a minute. That's a good segue, right? We're just going to go there. Just left turn right now. I'm no astrophysicist, but I am a part-time nerd, right? I like, to, I'm, I like geeky things. And ever since I was a young boy, I've been absolutely fascinated by space. I, I've been captivated by this great unknown infinity that exists beyond all that I can see. When I was young, I had these books, giant books, colorful books uh, with pictures of rockets and, and shuttles and spacesuits and planets and moons and stars. And I would marvel at the size of the planets in our solar system. I would be, I would feel this twinge of, of thrilled anxiety when I would see other stars in our universe compared to our star, the sun, and how big they were, and it made me feel so small, and yet I was in awe of that creation. I daydreamed about what it would be like to fly through space in one of those rockets and look out on Earth, our beautiful planet, from far away. I loved space, but there was one thing, as I would read my books and I would look through the pictures, uh, there was one thing about space that baffled me. It was hard to understand, but it also terrified me. And that was this thing called the black hole. Have you heard of this? A black hole? Uh, here's a picture. Uh, as I was Googling pictures of black hole, uh, this actually was the image from uh, one of the books that I had as a child. Uh, I was quite surprised to find it. This picture is terrifying. Uh, it's not 100% accurate of what a black hole is, uh, but it's close, but it kind of gets you there. See, a black hole is what remains after a massive star dies. Its name is kind of misleading because it's not actually a hole at all. It's just the remains of the star. You see, a star is a giant ball of gas with a really dense core. And that core creates an intense gravitational field that is always trying to collapse the star. But there are these enormous fusion reactions that happen at the core, like giant fusion bombs that are constantly also trying to explode the star. So you have these two different things happening. One uh, force is trying to uh, collapse the star. The other one's trying to explode the star. So it keeps the star as it is. And that energy that's emitted is what we see in the sky. Now, near the end of a star's life, it begins expelling more and more energy, which means the stars grow and grow until finally they run out of energy. And once it runs out of energy, there's no force to counteract that gravitational pull coming from the core, and the star and all the matter that makes up the star collapses in on itself. And as it collapses... As it collapses, all the leftover material and leftover energy from that star, as it collapses, the core heats up and then it explodes. I mean, a violent, massive explosion happens. They call that a supernova. Now, what remains from that violent and traumatic event at the end of a star's life uh, is this massive 
an incredibly dense core with a gravitational pull that is so great that light cannot even escape it. I want that to sink in for a minute. Gravity, the thing that keeps our feet on the ground, planted firmly here on earth, a, a, a force that at this, at this core that is left behind at the end of this event, that same force that is so strong that even waves of light cannot escape. That's why they call it a black hole, because you can't see it. It disappears in space because light cannot escape. And things that orbit a little too closely to that black hole get caught up in that gravitational pull and they get pulled in and they end up disappearing and being destroyed. That's why they call it a hole. Think of this as a giant whirlpool in a, in, a, in a large body of water. A whirlpool creates a current throughout that body of water that pulls anything that's any water and anything floating on that water toward its center. Now, the farther you are from the center of the whirlpool, the, the current is weaker, right? There's still a current, but it's just weaker. And so it doesn't take much effort at all, but if you just give a little bit of effort, you can move yourself in a direction opposite of the core. But if no effort is made whatsoever to escape the core, if one were just to sit in that current, though it may be slow at first, it would slowly drag you closer and closer and closer to that center. And as you got closer to the center of the whirlpool, the current would get stronger and stronger and stronger until you re reach a point of no return when the current is so strong that no matter how hard you try, no matter what effort you give, you're going to reach the center of the whirlpool. You won't be able to escape. This, generally speaking, is how a black hole works. Now, while I find all this fascinating, and maybe a few of you find that fascinating, I know that you didn't show up here today for a science lesson from me. I don't tell you all this to warn you just in case you decide over the next week to go up in your rocket and peruse space a little while and you stumble upon a black hole. That's not why I'm telling you all this. I tell you all this to better illustrate the effect of trauma and, hard time, and the hard times that follow that trauma on our lives. When we have a negative experience, which we're going to use the umbrella term trauma here, uh, no matter how big or small, when we have a negative experience in our life, there is an explosion, a disruption, or a disturbance in our life. It could be a fight with a spouse or a family member or a friend. It could be the sudden loss of a loved one. It could be a worrisome diagnosis. And, and when it happens, a shockwave is sent through your world. Now, once that moment has passed, once that initial moment has passed, what's left behind is this uh, metaphorical, concentrated ball, a dense, dark core of fear. And depending on the significance of the trauma, that core could be this big, could be this big, could be this big. And that fear could manifest itself in a number of ways and goes by a number of names. That fear could be called guilt. The trauma you experienced you may perceive to be a result of a mistake that you made or a decision that you made. You perceive yourself to be the source of the trouble that happened and now the core that is left behind is this heavy guilt and it burdens you. 
It pulls on you. It, it, it sucks you in. It lures you toward it. And it begins to affect the other areas of your life because everything is shaded by that guilt. That fear could be called anger. The trauma in your life may be the result of somebody else's doing. Something happened to you. Someone has wronged you. And there's a fear that there will be no justice. And the more you think about it, the more angry you become. It's like this unquenchable fire that exists in you. It consumes you. And it can consume everything around you. Maybe that fear is called worry. You see trauma happening all around you and you worry that it'll happen to you next. You have sleepless nights because you feel helpless to control the situation that worries you. And the more you focus and the more you think about that thing that worries you, you don't really feel better. You actually just worry more. Fear can go by many names and manifest itself in a number of ways, but the truth remains that fear in our lives can and will consume us if we let it. The fear that is left behind in the wake of trauma, the fear that exists in the midst of our hard times, demands our attention and has a gravitational pull that draws us toward it. It pulls us and can easily absorb us if we let it. The world we live in may seem crazy. Life may seem on the verge of falling apart. It may seem like we have no control of our future and we let that fear reign in our lives. It becomes the first thing. It gets all of our attention. Fear begins to reign in us. And when that happens, we become egocentric. We become self-focused, self-centered. We become inwardly focused. That gravitational pull continues to pull us inward into that fear because our circumstances, because of, of the fear in our hard time, we find ourselves caught up in our problems, in our addiction, in our shame, our worries, and we lose sight of anything else in our world. And like a black hole, we are pulled further and further in, and if we don't correct our course, if we don't refocus our direction, we could end up at a point of no return where that fear completely consumes us. But if fear is egocentric, meaning that it draws us inward, we must understand that faith is God-centric because it draws us upward. Fear is egocentric, and faith is God-centric. Faith is our response to fear as Christians. As fear pull, as fear's pull wants to drag us further and further inward, it is our faith that continues to draw us and drive us upward. And this, I believe, is where Habakkuk and black holes meet together. Habakkuk surveys the situation around him as he writes, he lives in a divided nation. He sees the northern kingdom under foreign rule, and he knows that any day now the southern kingdom will suffer the same fate. And worst of all, he knows that he and his people are powerless to stop it. There is a great fear that exists within him and all of Judah. Worry and anger and guilt are all present. And in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, as you, as you looked at in, in week 1, in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, all that fear, all that buildup, uh, 
uh, we see Habakkuk, we see the explosion that Habakkuk has, and he has it with God. The prophet lets loose all of that fear and anxiety and worry and anger on God in chapter 1. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Destruction and violence are before me. The wicked surround the righteous. But through those first two chapters, as we mentioned, this is a dialogue between the two. Habakkuk explodes and God responds. Then Habakkuk complains again. And as we wrap up chapter 2, God responds once more. And he basically tells Habakkuk, yeah, it's going to be real bad. The Babylonians are coming. And it's not going to be good. But he also says this, beginning with verse 3. There's a revelation that awaits the appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. And though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Talking about the enemy again. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. And then we fast forward to verse 20. And this is what God ends with. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Don't you love that? Habakkuk, it's going to be bad. I know what's coming. But remember, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What God tells Habakkuk is that no matter how crazy the world is, no matter how desperate things seem, that God is still God. And there is none greater. Not you, not anybody, or anything. When I read these words from Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 20, it reminded me of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Or maybe you think of the words of Jesus in John 16. I have said this to you so that you may have peace. In this world you will face trouble, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. The truth for us today is this. No matter how crazy our world is, no matter how chaotic our lives get, no matter how hard the times are, that God is still God. And in good times and in bad, we are called to a place where God is still at the center of our lives. And when it's a bad place, we want God to be the center, not our fear, not our hurt, not our worry, not our guilt, not our anger, but God. When all that noise that, that demands our attention is around us, we are called to be still and know that God is still God because God resides in his holy temple and all the earth should be silent before it. We are called to that place to know that God is still on the throne. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this. How do I, in the midst of hard times, remind myself that God 
is still God. When my natural inclination is to let fear reign in my life, to let fear, worry, guilt, anger, demand, and monopolize all of my attention, how do I focus myself on God and let faith reign in my life? For Habakkuk, as we read, for Habakkuk it was seeking God in prayer. Habakkuk surveyed his situation and immediately went to God with all of his anger, with all of his worry, and prayed. And God responded. Habakkuk turned his attention back to God. For me, it's getting back to the basics. I know when things are are hard, uh, when I've gone through a particularly rough time, when there is fear present in my life, my, my attention, my focus tends to dart around at all the things that seek to harm me, all, all the parts of my situation that I want to control but can't seem to control. My, my attention is, is taken away from God. So I find for me that returning to the simple basics of my faith helps me reorient myself toward God. Things like prayer, daily devotion and, and reading of Scripture, Confession to my friends of what I'm going through. Asking them to intercede for me in prayer. When I do those things, when I do those simple practices of my faith, uh, my attention is reoriented toward God. That doesn't mean my fear goes away. That doesn't mean that my, my situation in which I live in completely goes away. But it just means I begin to trust in a God that is still God. And a God that has existed long before me and that will exist long after me. When I do this, my understanding is that faith, my faith in God does not make things easy, but it makes things possible. And when there is possibility, there is hope. So what about you? How will you keep focus on God when things are not going well? How will you remind yourself that God is still God and let faith reign in your life even in the midst of the hardest times? Let's pray together. Lord, you have very powerful images for us today. We pray, God, that you help us live each day focused on you. Let us not be people of fear, but people of faith. Let us stop our fearful fretting, but be constantly reminded of your power and your lavish love. You are always there offering hope and healing. Let that truth be the foundation of our life. And may we always be thankful and filled with praise. Amen.